the After Work Drinks Club, a business podcast where I chat with influential movers and shakers, top achievers, and all-round incredible people. We explore how they've got to where they are and how you can too. If you want to level up, go make your order at the bar, pull up a seat at the table, and join in, because you belong here. I'm your host, Vanessa Sanyauke, the founder and CEO of Girls Talk London a global agency that empowers thousands of women to develop the skills and confidence to succeed in their careers and life. So if you're listening on your morning commute with a coffee, working from home with a cup of tea, or joining us for after-work drinks, consider this your time to laugh, learn, and level up. On the podcast today, we have Vanessa Dietzel and Laura Watkins, authors of The Performance Curve. I really like to be valuable. I really like to have people tell me, Laura, that was just so useful. Thank you. That was so helpful. Or so good to have you in the meeting. It was wonderful. And so ticking around the bottom of, of my iceberg is a thing around, am I being valuable? You know, do I feel like I'm adding value? Am I getting a bit of reinforcement from other people? That then fuels a whole load of habits and behaviours in my iceberg that I have to keep a real check on. Hey everyone, welcome back to the After Work Drinks Club. This podcast is brought to you by Blue Water and I'm their brand ambassador for this season. And today I'm drinking their still water as I drank too much this weekend. So cheers to you. Today we have Vanessa Dietzel and Laura Watkins, authors of The Performance Curve, a book about how to maximise your potential in your career whilst also strengthening your well-being. This is an ideal listen for anyone working on improving their career because we all know too well the dangers of burning out and the effects it can have on our physical and mental well-being. Some of my favourite things about Vanessa and Laura is their credibility. They both have the academic experience in this area, as well as years of practical experience. So I really felt safe in their hands and taking on their advice. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And please don't forget to follow and subscribe wherever you are listening and make sure you leave a review. When you leave a review, it helps the podcast and the community grow. So I'd like to shout out Anita, who left this really lovely review on Apple Podcasts. She says, I really loved this episode. Please, we need more talks like this. I've learned so much from this podcast. God bless you guys. Thank you so much, Anita. That's so kind of you. Welcome, Laura and Vanessa D to the After Work Drinks Club. How are you both doing? Great, thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, such a pleasure. We feel very honoured to have been invited. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to get stuck into our chat, but you both will know the drill. So we ask all of our guests, first of all, what are you going to order at the virtual bar? That's the most important question. Let's get that out of the way. <laughs> what will you both order? If I go to Vanessa D, what would you order? Yeah. So, so the first after works drink I actually had with Laura and some clients was a hot chocolate. So in honour of that, I would have that today. Ah, oh, lovely. Right, hot chocolate. Laura, what's your one? Yeah, I'm going to hit the gin and tonic. I'm sorry to lower the tone. But yeah, that's my after work drink of choice, I have to say these days. Okay, gin and t- I love that. I love that. I, I'm literally like a lover of gin as well. And I have like, yeah, tonic water. So we'll cheers to that. We also ask our guests to 
toast to the highlight of the year so far. So second cheers is what have been your highlights of the year so far? Just pick one. If I go to Laura, what's your highlight of the year? I am going to have to book. Uh, pick the launch of our book, The Performance Curve. It's been a massive effort over the last couple of years to put it together. And it's always a big moment. We don't know how it's going to land in the big wider world, but it's done. It's out since a few weeks ago. And yeah, for me, that's a real joint highlight and, and something that I'm really proud that we, we pulled off together. I would have said the same. So in that yeah. case, I guess I get a second one, which was the first in-person workshop I did this year, bringing people together, being together physically to come together in in a sense of authenticity and sharing and growth and learning. That was very special too. That's awesome. That's really good. I think they're both, yeah, both amazing highlights of the year. So we'll cheers to that. We'll do a virtual cheers. Cheers. In the virtual After Magic's Club. (laughs) Cheers. Well, congratulations on the release of your book, The Performance Curve. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But I want to talk first about your careers. So you've both worked in consulting. So Laura, you were at McKinsey. Vanessa, you were at Boston Consulting Group, um, which both are demanding sectors, like the management consultancy is very demanding. I wondered, thinking about your book as well, what was your experience like working in these consultancies? You know, I have a really vivid memory about two or three months before I started McKinsey of going for a drink in in the West End where McKinsey was based at the time to meet a friend of mine who joined a couple of months before me. And we met at eight o'clock p.m. And she emerged from the office straight to arrive in this place at 8pm for a a drink. And I just was flabbergasted by the idea that somebody had worked 9am till 8pm. And I just couldn't ever have imagined how I'd have the stamina to do that. But in the end, I did work there for six years. And I worked, you know, hard in, in that sort of vein. But I have to say, I wouldn't change it for a second. It was a really fantastic way to start my career. I just met so many people who I am still friends with today, People that I work with, I met Vanessa indirectly through my McKinsey network and just such a bunch of rich, interesting, creative individuals and a discipline, a way of thinking about problems to take any problem, however complex, random, ambiguous and and deconstruct it into its constituent parts and then really say, okay, how are we going to really break this down and just answer it systematically and step by step and find evidence to, to answer questions when not obvious what that is going to be. And I think that has been a real training for life and a confidence builder for life that it was worth the long weeks for to take on board for the rest of my career. I guess it set you up for what you're doing right now, do you believe then? Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Absolutely. And I think another thing is I started at McKinsey as a mid-20s PhD student you know, I just finished my PhD working in a lab in Cambridge for three years and hadn't really, you know, seen much outside of the the hospital and the patients that I'd been working with. And I think to be able to go into so many different companies and travel the world, you know, I remember getting on planes to all over the world for training and for client work from Australia to the US to Spain and I mean, Middle East, Far East, the, the list goes on and on. And And it was just such a wonderful way to become a world citizen from having been in a very sort of enclosed space for my PhD and to learn about all different kinds of businesses and all elements of businesses. It was really a way of getting an MBA without having to go to business school. So I I feel lucky It sounds really, yeah, really well, well, well rounded. I mean, Vanessa, was that your experience as well at Boston Consulting Group? Yeah, I definitely echo that. Just the the variety of exposure you get um, to businesses, different types of business problems. Also to somebody like me who has 
never really had any exposure to business was quite amazing and eye-opening. And to be able, beyond just the business knowledge, to really see what is possible if you put your mind to it and if you put resources to it and if you say whatever barriers there are, there is a solution. Those are the kind of mindsets Laura was alluding to as well. I think that to be in an environment like that where everybody ticks like that is is quite unique in the world and a lot that perhaps we can transfer out of a somewhat insular environment that consulting is as well, that everyone can benefit and hopefully we can crack some of the other problems we face in the world today as well with. Yeah. And in context of the book, maybe something really interesting, I think, especially when we're talking about strenuous work environments or long hours, is that I also saw there was such a variety of people with very different work life balances. Yeah, I can imagine. So I took from that as well. It's not just the environment. It's not just how a company or an industry works. It's actually a lot to do with the individuals that, and perhaps more than we think that is in our own individual control as well. Yeah. So I think that'll be quite interesting actually when we, when we get into the um, details of the book, but it's interesting, at least you both have seen, and this is what I really um, like about you both, that you're writing from so many different perspectives as academics, well-seasoned, but also you've actually worked in with so many different world leaders in your career. So I think it's just really exciting that you've got that, those, that both of you have got that experience. Laura, though, you branched out and set up uh, your own consulting business, the Cognitas Group. You launched that in 2008 and it's to help leaders thrive, perform and build powerful organisations. So what was that experience like going from sort of like employee to business owner on your own? Yeah, of course, it was exhilarating and scary all at the same time. Yeah, yeah. With my colleague at the time, a lady called Shani, who, who I still run Cognitas with today, we, we decided to, to branch out and set up our business. And it was actually a month after Lehman Brothers uh, failed. So right at the beginning of that massive crash in 2008. And wow. so we were setting up in that environment and we really had no clue, but it just felt like the right thing to do for us and uh, for the clients that we wanted to serve. And, and so we did. And the first year or two, we, we had a couple of clients that we picked up pretty early on, but we didn't really know what we were doing. We had this brand new business and we went out, we had to talk to a whole ton of people and just network and, and figure out what we were actually doing. We changed probably the description and the, the boundaries of what we were offering several times in those first few years as we were trying to figure it out. And it's only really in the last few years, I would say, that we've settled down and our patterns of work are relatively stable. And then, of course, they're starting to innovate and change again now as a result of the pandemic. And you know, it started to change a little bit before that, but we're in another incarnation. But yeah, those first few years were definitely a roller coaster in a good way. And I think we went through so many phases during the pandemic, you know, and still are in phases of trying to figure out what our business meant and how to support people. When the pandemic started, we, at the time, the, the majority of the work we had coming up in the following for the year ahead was face-to-face leadership programs where companies bring in groups of 20 to 40 leaders from all around the world to sit in the same room from all their different offices, which just was impossible on all sorts of levels and still, frankly, is pretty impossible. And so all our work just dried up 100% overnight. And I think we and our clients spent the first few weeks just blinking and going, oh my goodness, what what is this about? What are we now trying to do? 
and how do we best support them? And I think from that, we then were able to be quite creative and come up with ways to support leaders in virtually perhaps a bit different from what we'd been planning to do with them, but still help them to cope with the pandemic. And yeah, I do think that those years of being flexible and trying different things and innovating and knowing that some months we didn't have any revenue coming in and some months we had loads of revenue coming in has given us a certain confidence and resilience. And certainly we never really worried about our business and its stability. I think we'd had enough ups and downs and enough kind of cushion and robustness that thankfully for us, it wasn't a struggle. I think for a much younger business, it would have been, we would have found that tough. Let's talk about the book. So the performance curve, what was the intention behind it and why is it so important? So the intention behind it is really to help people live their lives really well, whatever that means for them. But it is, like we say in the book, for life well lived. Whatever we want to achieve in our careers or at work, we need to put in a bigger context of what we really want to get out of life in, in, in general. And that includes different types of well-being, whether that's physical or emotional relationships we have, life satisfaction, mental, spiritual, all of that. And that I think is really in the heart of what Laura and I had been working on over the years together and wanted to put in a book to make just accessible to more people in the way that we have found has really worked with the clients we're working with. So I think for me personally, what it meant also in our collaboration, of which the book really is a consolidation, is that I noticed through my own inner growth journey that my work and what I was achieving at work was really benefiting at the same time. So the connection actually independence of how comfortable I felt in my own skin, how I was going about my life, how authentic I felt I could be, all those things that actually translated into doing better in a traditional sense at work as well. So this notion, I was experiencing that really at the time of working smarter and not harder and how there's a lot of bridges one can make between more of the traditional wisdom traditions, which I was then taking some time away from consulting to training and and to practice for a few years, making that connection to what Laura was bringing from the neuroscience angles that she'd been so deeply steeped in and the work she'd been doing with leaders. So the book really brings together uh, that arch of, of business, brain, breathing and body. So the more holistic sides to to help people live their best possible lives. We have used this idea of the inner operating system as very central to the book. And and what we're saying is, Vanessa was talking earlier about how our goal is really to help people to to live their their best lives and to do that by trying to have both effectiveness, to be effective and to have and have to and to have well-being. And that the way we can do that is through this, through developing what we call our inner operating system. For us, that's really the deep wiring inside our brains that has developed over the years and has become something of a of an automatic uh, filter for us. So anytime we face a situation, we have certain thought patterns that we're just predisposed to have based on how much, how many times we've had them in the past and the experiences we've had, and then certain ways that we're going to react emotionally and certain things that we're going to do. So our habits, and so they become very deeply wired in our brains. And actually, you can. You can, you can you, we can see what the physical equivalent is in our brains and that it's roots of nerve cells which are called neurons in our brains that have been used so repeatedly that they've they've fired together so they've wired together more strongly and they build fatty tissue around the neurons so that they actually conduct faster if we wrap insulation around a, an electrical conducting wire and that means that they just become more and more default the more and more we use them these pathways and so what we're saying in the book is actually 
those defaults are there and they're very useful because they help us react quickly, but perhaps they're not serving us anymore. Perhaps the context has changed or what we want to achieve has changed. And how can we actually shift them? And that means we have to step back and recognize them as a first step. And then we have to start deliberately trying to figure out what we want to do instead and gradually training our brains to do something differently. And we can do that. That's neuroplasticity, which we now know does happen in adults. But it takes work and it takes repeated practice and perhaps feeling a bit clunky in the beginning. But we will, if we practice over time, be able to develop new pathways. You also talk about in the book, the boom and bust curve. So where we push ourselves too hard and then become paralysed with stress. And I was just like smiling to myself, reading it, thinking, oh yeah, that's, that sounds like me every other day. <laughs> like, you just go up and down, um, you know, working really hard and then you're like so stressed. You just feel like, where do I go from here? Um, so how can we avoid the boom and bust curve? And just talk to us a bit more about this concept. So the boom and bust curve is is what it looks like then as a picture, what I was alluding to earlier with that protective state. So when changes that are happening, we respond to them as if they were threats and there's something we are looking to protect. And that is what creates that adrenaline spike and also is quite exhausting on our brain and, and bodies. And that's when we then find, oh, we need to recover because we run out of steam and then we pick up again when the next tiger is around the corner, so to speak. So there is very little growth at that deeper level that really builds the capacity longer term for complexity change and, and uncertainty. So that's the boom and bust curve. And the way to avoid it is there, there is no silver bullet, unfortunately, saying yeah. that's the thing, but lots <laughs> yeah. of little things we can do very practically that don't take a lot of time that can really help us First of all, notice which of the curves we're on. Are we on the boom and bust curve? Are we on the performance curve? And then tools that help us actually shift to the performance curve. So it starts with the awareness of actually being able to tell where am I right now? And then not piling guilt or shame on ourselves or um, criticizing and saying, all right, okay, that's where I'm now. How do I get myself into that more deliberate, creative space that is the performance curve where actually I am effective and it is contributing to my well-being rather than a performance spike that actually drains my well-being. Yeah. That's true, isn't it? That's the key, isn't it? Well, you think you're performing, but actually, like you just said, it's not because it's bringing you down. So you need to know how to perform in a way where you're actually it's optimising your, your well-being. So exactly. that's really key. And I'm sure you've yeah. had times where you were just really absorb like what they call flow state and something you were doing you were enjoying it and you were going oh wow I did this and really did some great work as well and that's that sweet spot I guess in a way that both is possible now it's not all the time there are challenges on the performance curve as well but then we've really built up a good buffer yeah. to see us through and learn from it for the future that's really the important point that we don't just go in this okay I'll just knuckle through now I'll get through this now, blinkers on, but actually, wow, what can I learn from this situation right now and what I'm finding challenging? Yeah. And you also, you, for the book, you interviewed so many incredible C CEOs and leaders. I wanted to find out what surprised you the most about their experiences and what did they reveal to you? So it was such a privilege to interview everyone that we we spoke to for the book. They were generous and and kind with their time. And I think also just the level of openness and, and, and sharing that we got from them was really something quite special. And I think what struck uh, me, and perhaps I'm speaking for Vanessa as well, is that it wasn't that they'd all just sorted it out and it was all just perfect and they just didn't have any gremlins or demons or whatever. It was that they actually all had learned techniques 
to help themselves be successful. And they had an awareness of those techniques. So they were quite able to say, everyone from your mother, the virtuoso cellist, through to many of the, the CEOs and, and innovators that we, we also interviewed, they were able to quite deliberately say, oh, I've learned to cope in these challenging situations in this way. Here's how I reframe my mindset. So here are the techniques that, that I have developed to deliberately help me bring, it my, bring my best. I have many days where I'm not at my best and I know how to... Uh, catch myself and make sure that I, I perform, especially on the important days. And Vanessa was alluding to that earlier. It's not that we, we develop an, an ability to just be at our best all the time. It's that we have to deliberately work to be able to get ourselves back to our best. And I think they'd all honed a certain, pretty individual, everyone was a bit different, but cocktail of, of, of recipes to be able to do that. And did you see any differences between the men and women? Did you notice anything, any differences? Or was it similar? I don't think we did see any differences between the men and the women that we could put into categories. And here's why I think that's the case, or at least one of the reasons why I think that's the case. When we were picking the people we we wanted to, to interview and to feature in the book, we were very deliberate about who we chose. We didn't pick people who we would define as conventionally successful, conventional alpha males or alpha females who were just very successful in a very in very kind of classic sense we actually were looking for something a little bit more subtle which was people who we really felt had elements of both the effectiveness and the well-being and had a level of kind of depth and reflection and distance on the way they thought and acted that would give us clues into what it took to be on the performance curve. And I think because that was such a precise definition, we ruled out speaking to so many really wonderful leaders who have been very successful in many other ways. We actually ended up with a group of people who probably weren't, you know, didn't fall into any particular stereotypes or or categories or differences, but really had, yeah, that unique set of qualities that we were really looking for. That's quite good then. It shows that there is a common, well, I guess... Not common thread, but I think it just shows that, yeah, everyone has their own unique stories that everyone can learn from. And even more that everyone, however we are wired for whatever reasons, there is a space for us and something very unique that we can bring to the world. And that kind of belongs. I love how you say pulling a chair because you belong and that we all belong Mm -hmm. because they have all found ways to really make their, whoever they are, to make that work. Yeah, yeah. And that was really really inspiring, yeah. And I think, I guess talking about belonging, so there's a question that, or a thought that I had in my mind, the idea of how sort of individuals, we need to think about getting on the performance curve. Some people might say, okay, for marginalised communities, especially when it comes to sort of like ethnic minorities, for example, they might say, well, okay, do I have that comfort of actually factoring my well-being in my performance and success at work when we already have so many barriers so some people might be thinking sort of about this aspect so what would you say to people from marginalized communities who might sort of think is this really applicable to me so first of all we really tried and have a broad representation as well in our interviewees it's not perfect mm-hmm. we, for example we had a few black candidates we were considering but for different reasons then didn't go ahead and I would have liked to actually in hindsight work a bit harder and find people like you and and networks to actually make sure we also have black people in there but with the diversity we have I think what 
we hope to show there is that it applies to anyone and their uh, challenges because they're all challenges. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, there is something that is a shared humanity in terms of how we respond to that. And what that is that when we feel better, we do better. And when we do better, we feel better. Yeah. So it's almost, I would put it back to, you can't afford not to pay attention to that because to really thrive, that will come from you just knowing I'm worthy in myself. Uh, yeah. I am a, a worthwhile human being. I have something to contribute, et cetera. And that is, is something I hope we, we, we all achieve irrespective of. Yeah. I, I agree because I think even reading the book and just thinking, well, the fun, the, I guess they're two separate issues. And so I really want to get that question and to hear you speak about that because it's important to encourage people from marginalised communities to start, to not let the barriers defeat you, to keep on, like you're saying, thinking about how you can be better, thinking about what sort of techniques you can do to perform well. And so I really am encouraged by that, that to hear you say that as well. So thanks for, yeah. for answering that yeah. question. Yeah. And also and that was important to us in that sense of making all these tool we had, tools we had tried and tested and developed over the years to actually mm-hmm. put them in a book so that it is more accessible and not just in these exclusive leadership programs that corporates are paying for. Yeah, it's true, actually. It's, it's really making it really accessible as well. Vanessa, I really echo that. But I also think that it's to bear in mind that small things make a difference in getting on the performance curve. So we might feel stuck in a hole and be really f- have our feel like our well-being and our effectiveness are fighting against each other. We're having to work incredibly hard to to stay afloat for whatever reason it is, regardless of our background, whatever it is we're facing at the current time. and the small things make a difference. The five minutes of journaling before you go to bed at night or the three structured questions that you ask yourself on the bus on the way into work or whatever it is that you can do to just get a little bit of distance and see how you're getting in your own way and how you can do things a bit differently can already make a little bit, make really quite a big difference. And I think that's when you start to make a step towards the performance curve and it just gradually builds from there. And I know that in the times in my life when I've been on my knees with exhaustion with a young child or night after night when she's been ill and having to go to work the next day and thinking, oh my goodness, this is so ironic. I'm writing a book about effectiveness and well-being, and I've had about four hours sleep in the last three days. But it's the little mindsets and the little resets and the little changes to my habits that gradually call me back to that. And then I just build from there. So I think it's it's to to stay positive and keep looking for those small opportunities. You have this icebergs theory. I really loved that theory. Can you just explain to us about how you sort of use the icebergs theory in terms of problem solving? Yeah, so the iceberg is a really powerful analogy for the inner operating system and connecting that with the outcomes we see in our lives. So if you picture an iceberg that is popping up with part above the surface, that's the bit we see. And that's really the result. So that could be our performance in general or relationships we have. And then what is also usually visible is is behaviors. At least some of them might be less visible. And that's where we start to get under the surface, that just the parts that are less visible in terms of how we create these different results in our lives. So there's there's some behaviors that are a bit underneath the surface. And then we get really deeper into the parts that Laura described within the operating system. So our mindsets, our emotional reactions, and our habits that are a bit more hidden from view. And sometimes we're also not aware of, not because mm-hmm. they're bad, but just because of a function of, of our brain that 
wants to save energy and automate these things as we covered. So the iceberg is great because it allows us to see, okay, here's the, here's something on the symptom of my life in a way. Mm. I might be overworked and overstretched and I don't know how to solve it. The solution comes from actually diving down and finding what is the root cause of that and how I yeah. make sense of the world, how I respond, how I prioritize, how I react um, emotionally and therefore the, the actions I take. Well, I can give you an example if that's helpful. That would help. Let me think of an example from my own life. Let's take an example for me of like effectiveness and well-being. And this is my kind of bet noir. So my the things that always catch me out, give a bit of window into the way I work. So I really like to be valuable. I really like to have people tell me, Laura, that was just so useful. Thank you. That was so helpful. Or so good to have you in the meeting. It was wonderful. And so ticking around dot bottom of, of my iceberg is a thing around, am I being valuable? Do I feel like I'm adding value? Am I getting a bit of reinforcement from other people? And that then fuels a whole load of habits and behaviors in my iceberg that I have to keep a real check on around saying yes to meetings that I don't need to be at, responding to help when I could pass it on to one of the team members to do it, all those things that then threaten my effectiveness and, and well-being and, and allow me to make good choices about what is really important and where I really need to be spending my time to add the most value. So I'm constantly in a bit of a dance in my own iceberg about, let me check myself, is this really where a place where I can add value or is it actually me just succumbing to my short-term desires to just respond to to requests because I know I can quickly add value. And then that allows me to make different choices. When I get it right, my iceberg looks much healthier. It means that I can really focus on the things that matter and still get the time to go for a run, put my daughter to bed and spend a good amount of time with her after school, all those things that really matter to me and get a decent night's sleep. When I'm not getting it so imbalanced, I might be finding that I'm a bit overloaded with stuff, which frankly, other people in the team could be doing. And then I'm spending bit of extra time at night writing an article or a bit of the book or whatever it is and going to bed a bit late and you know waking up the next morning feeling not as fresh and and not as ready for the day and that's fine for a night or two but you know over time then the results are I think the top of the iceberg starts to I start to take a hit on that in terms of certainly in terms of my well-being and eventually in terms of my effectiveness. It sounds really understanding yourself is a bit of sort of inner work you have to do to really sort of understand and tune into yourself so that you can see these coming in. It, it is. Yeah. And I think that thing about, for me, understanding that one of the things that really drives me is a desire to be valuable. That's been fundamental in my life. When I figured that out about 10 or 15 years ago, and then I figured out that other people didn't necessarily have that exact same thing, but they had different things. It was an eye opener for me, both in a good and a bad way, actually, because it, it made me realize the patterns that have been running for me for many years. But now that I know that, I can see it showing up, not just in the example I gave you, but also in any other yeah sphere of life personal or professional and and it allows me to make much better choices and just redirect, redirect myself more healthily and I think one of the things that we really try to do in the book is to help people get to that level of debt if they follow the the reflections and the the guidance and the stories that we give in the book they should get the beginnings of some insight into that sort of thing and I think it has made a real difference to all the people that we've worked with on on these sorts of things over the years and how do you both check in with yourself to ensure that you don't hit that kind of crisis point or kind of tipping point? Yeah, so we follow the the three catalysts, really, which is the reason really we came up with them. I mean, first of all, we've both spent a lot of time actually understanding how our in-operating systems work. So knowing 
what to look for, how to work with mindsets, emotions and, and habits so that we have that and that's the wisdom catalyst. And then we have our our range of sort of favorite tools to help us day to day check in. So building that self-awareness and and helping us then self-manage and kind of back, get back in form and make sure when we're steering off a bit, what Laura was describing, we come back on track. And for me, that's definitely breathing. So I do a most mornings half hour breathing meditation, you could call it, or, or breathing practice that really has that sense of, oh, okay, my sense of self, this is my space, my time where I automatically then then process what's going on, where am I maybe a bit out of alignment or or not. And that at the same time, which is why I love it, has great physical and, and emotional benefits as well. And then with each other, that's then the connection catalyst. Also having somebody like Laura who can say, oh, Vanessa, I, you know, see you're not really well, she, she never quite, put it, put, quite puts it like that. Bringing your best and knowing, okay, this what's going on? And very open conversations with and really just show up as who I am and say, okay, this, frankly, this really just sucks now. I was so frustrating or uh, I don't feel like doing this and can take me for that, but then help me through to get back on form. I would love to know, just hearing sort of you speak around that in terms of checking in with yourself and sort of do, knowing how to just get back on track. What would be your top tips for the everyday employee or up and coming leaders around how they can sort of maximize and reach their full potential? What would be like your top three tips? Number one tip would be to have some kind of technique for checking in with themselves that they do every day. And I think that could be mindfulness every morning or breathing or something that just settles them down and grounds them and gives them a bit of perspective on how they're showing up for the day and and allows them to redirect themselves. Or it could be something that is a bit more of a check-in at the end of the day and get some insight on how things went and allow them to redirect the, the, the next day. I'm a big fan of journaling. I am as well. Yeah, and there are loads of different <laughs> yeah. kinds of journaling. But you know, one of the things we realised as we were writing the book is that the evidence base around journaling is very strong. Most people know that mindfulness is good for your brain. I'm not sure that people are as aware of how good journaling is for your brain as well. There's a lot of data behind it. And so I think either just your stream of consciousness for a few minutes at the end of the day into a notepad and, and see what that gets you, or a kind of a structured thing where you look at the day and how it went and what you can learn and how you, what are your intentions for the next day. Either of those types of journaling, I think, are a really good good technique which we've seen a lot of benefits for the leaders that we work with so that would be definitely a first tip I think a second tip would be find a buddy Vanessa alluded to the fact that we've become buddies probably a few years before we wrote this book but certainly through the process of writing in the book somebody that you can really pick up the phone to and say I'm struggling and share why and accept being challenged and so on and it could be someone at work or someone out of work, but someone who can really support you on that level. And it might not be your partner. It might not be somebody, if you've got a partner at home who you come home to at the end of the day and you're both knackered and you want to actually just have dinner and watch TV or whatever, it might not be them. It might be somebody a bit different or it could be them, but someone who can really support you. And then I think a third tip is to have a bit of a dream, a sense of purpose, a sense of a mission, uh, a reason to contribute, you know, what's what's going to set you apart. And it doesn't need to be a big world vision to, to solve hunger or 
bring world peace or fix climate change. It can be anything that's about somehow making life better for those around you or for for whatever it is, whatever cause that matters to you. And I think having a bit of a dream, something that pulls you along, gets you up in the morning, helps you focus your plans, makes a really big difference. And you might not end up meeting that exact dream. You might go after something different, but at least having a sense of direction that you can then work from and make choices around. Coming back to what I was saying earlier about knowing what matters to me and how I add value and making the choices and prioritization, I need to know what I'm working towards in order to be able to filter out the stuff that that other people can take care of and figure out where I can uniquely add value. So I think that that's a third key I would I really advise for people to, to work on and to have a, a regular reflection, perhaps annually. Interestingly, one of the things actually I didn't mention that really surprised me about many of the people we spoke to was how deliberate they were about their annual planning. And loads of them said, oh, this is just really routine. I can't believe I'm even sharing this with you. But they have these kind of annual plans. So they have a retreat in the summer or a week in the winter or a mindfulness meditation thing that they go and do for a week by themselves every year, whatever it is. But they have a moment in the year where they stop and they think, where have I got to and what am I trying to accomplish in the next year? And then they break that down into quarterly goals, monthly goals, weekly goals and daily goals. And they are that deliberate about it. And it evolves and it changes and they give themselves plenty of forgiveness for not meeting the exact list of things and everything. But they have a real sense of what they're trying to do. And I think that deliberation, deliberateness over year after year really compounds to to deliver the extraordinary performance that we saw from many of them. Like That's quite key. That is, yeah, planning. So Laura covered really great sort of continuous tools to do as a, a recurrent crisis in the overall big picture. So I'll throw in two more ad hoc ones when we find ourselves in a bit of a... <gasps> protect mode perhaps or feeling challenged and we want to find our calm again so so one is a a breathing technique that's that's really simple I mean even just taking a longer deeper breath if you can't remember this will help you already and settle your heart rate etc but very simple to do is just to inhale with like two short sharp bursts through the nose and then exhale really slowly through your pursed lips as long as you can make it Okay. If you do just a few of those, you will notice just immediately, oh, your blood pressure, literally your heart rate sinking down. So that can be really great when you're on the go. And the other one is to use your physicality in your body. So whether that is just having a dance in your kitchen to a tune you like, just to get into the energy that you want to bring in that moment. Or if you're a bit stressed, just running up and down the stairs, just to get your breath and the the heart kind of pumping and just be used to feeling the body again can be really grounding then as well. So centering when you're finding the, the thoughts are flying off a bit, you're nervous about something, just coming back to something so tangible like the body and the movement and feeling safe in that. And, and sort of that sense of vitality can be really quick pick me up as well I love that I do love that I've, I've started to do that a bit more and just dance a bit more and yeah even just five ten minutes just dance around my place it, do, it does lift your mood and just sort of break up okay. yeah breaks things up yeah I definitely agree with that uh, I want to talk a bit more into you both individually just a little bit because I, I loved the introduction in your book where you begin with a question you said we only have one life what would make yours a life well lived so I wanted to know what would your answers be you know, I think for me, Vanessa, it's it's a really multifaceted question and I don't know whether I'm going to be able to share it in as articulate a way as I'd like to right now, but let me give it a go. It's also quite an emotional topic and I can feel myself kind of yeah. going, oh my God, I might cry. 
Yeah. But let me tell you why. So I think for me, ultimately, I really want to know that there are a handful of people around me that really feel like I've loved them and just been there for them and just sort of unconditionally giving them the support and my little daughter is obviously right at the top of that list along with my wonderful partner Olivier but I also hope that my mum and my brothers and my dad who's no longer there but I think we really we did we really did our best with him as well would would all say that I was really there for them and then some of my colleagues and clients that I've really partnered with over the years would all really feel like I've just had their back and been there for them no matter what not judge them and and so on and I think that's a really big part of it. And I'm not sure that 15 or 20 years ago, I would have been brave enough or just simple enough to just focus on that. I think I had grand plans about my career and everything. But but I think that for me is probably now the number one thing. And then alongside that, I definitely have some aspirations around my the effectiveness side of the performance curve. And and I, and I really want to feel like I've built something, I've contributed to something that somehow helped us better understand what this business of being human is all about. And in particular, I think the mission that Vanessa and I have shared together that's led to this book is around how we can really make it, uh, make people feel like doing work on their inner operating systems is normal and easy and something they can do every day. So for me, if I've contributed to that, that some people uh, out there that I know and some people out there that I don't know do a bit more work on their inner operating systems to make themselves have their lives better lived. That will also give me a lot of fulfillment. That's ultimately the purpose that I'm working on at the moment. And my purpose might evolve, but that's certainly what I'm up for. I also love learning. I'm just, I just love learning about all sorts of different things. So for me, a, a life well lived will also look like I've just gotten to try a bunch of new things, shifted those over the years. For, for me at times, it's been different languages. I love learning Italian. At the moment, I've recently started taking up chess and I'm quite looking forward to the day if ever I get to retire where I can go and do a degree in philosophy or architecture or something like that and just just absorb and be curious and, and so on. So for me, if I can keep that love of learning and keep indulging in that over the course of my life, I'll feel like I've really yeah taken what this planet and the, the wonderful human beings and, and animals and plants on it have to offer me during the time that I'm here. I love that. I love that. Vanessa, what would you say? So I was reminded listening to Laura of an answer I gave to the question of what success is for us when maybe I was 12 or something to my French teacher. And I said to have people in my life who love me and who I love. So that was the love as well. And she told me I had misunderstood the question. (laughs) (laughs) No, you hadn't. (laughs) Oh, wow. So you were so like, you really got it. Really I really got, got it and then I really lost it. And I think that mm. then feeds more into the book and why I do the, the things I do, because then I was really lost from that and what that even means. And I didn't really know what that means or felt like. And, and even though I had people around me quite isolated um, and, and lonely. So finding then my way to that and to discovering that through all sorts of failures or breakdowns is then something that I would say is my path. I'm not saying I'm there. I'm not, no, but is the path for me for life where I live to keep walking that. And that, that has certain elements like being really truthful and really honest with myself and, and with the people I love. Because I see honesty as a form of love, not withholding who I really am and, and wanting the same from people around me. And, and then simplicity as well. So really 
checking in what how much do I actually really need and and looking for simplicity of what really matters and I think that ties more into how I feel the, where the planet is at and a lot of the the problems we're having and, and disbalances where, where I hope in in different ways I can make a contribution to help people find much more perhaps the riches they're looking for externally to find that more inside themselves again and maybe we, we need to have less stuff or money or power etc then yeah amazing it's making me think actually as well to, to sort of answer that question for my for myself so I think that's changed I think when I was younger I placed a lot of like material or emphasis on material things like I thought it was a car or a handbag and then I've been like doing a lot of therapy this year and I've just seen the past year like my answer to that question is just more around like you're saying like the inner stuff and I'm very more simplistic now it's not about yeah superficial things it's really just about being at peace and having an ease like having a life that is easy in that respect of just like how I move every day so it's quite it's nice to sort of yeah hear that from both of you and yeah, it's how interesting, that can, you know I can shift Vanessa, when you describe mm. that that shift, that's inner work, right? That's working yeah. in your inner operating system. That's shifting your sense of purpose. It's just one of the elements that we talk about it in the fuel catalyst and it's challenging your mindsets and maybe it's led to changes in your habits as well. So it's interesting, again, you've moved your ice bag, it sounds like quite substantially and in a way that it seems to, sounds like it's putting a smile on your face. So it's, it's wonderful it, to it hear. Is. Yeah, it is. So it's really good to, to to hear from you both as well, your perspectives. But yeah, I didn't actually even realise I was working on my inner operating system. But now that all makes sense. It all actually does make sense. And it's it's been a journey as well. So I think the key thing is, you know, when people think about change, it's a long term thing. You're not going to change overnight. But it's good to see it like in moments like this, actually, yeah, I have changed and sort of what's been important to me. Yeah. And, and it's amazing yeah. to hear. And I, I think, sorry, one other thing I'd say about that is, is bank what you've, the, the, the new you, if you like, you know, the way in which you've evolved. But also what we really emphasize to people as they're getting their head around the performance curve is to also just notice what you've just done, as in the development work that you've just done. So to recognize, okay, you know, I've changed my mindsets. How did I do that? I've changed some habits. What were they? And how did I do that? And who's helped me on this journey? And it sounds like you've had some professional help, which is a brilliant thing to do. And I think one of the things I hope from this book is that people, it's one little contribution to people just having that be something that they just do from time to time and just support them in life. Because, you know, we don't need to wait for a crisis to get help. We can grow so much through it from whatever point we are. But also who individually around you, you know, your friends and family or colleagues can have also helped you grow and can continue to help you grow. Because when you can really isolate, or when you can really recognize that, then you can keep doing it and you'll keep doing it next year, you'll do it the year after and so on. And that's really when the performance curve starts to kick in, when you can get the kind of compounding benefits of continuing to grow uh, year after year and and adjust to, to the life around you yeah I definitely agree I want to play um, a game that we ask all of our guests it's the quick shots round so I'll ask you a question I just want you to give me the first answer that comes um, to your mind and we're asking all of our guests similar questions or the same questions during this game so I'll go to Vanessa for this one can you tell us the trip that changed your life or that was most memorable yeah, definitely my first trip to India, where I had the most contact with poverty I've ever had and just lived in the most basic way I've ever lived. And then just the, the gratitude I have now for hot water coming out of the shower, which is quite common here, um, yeah. is, is something that is, is still lasting to this day. Yeah. 
yeah and and other things laura if you mess up big time at work who do you call and why I call either Vanessa or my yeah. dear colleague of 13 years, my longest adult relationship, non-family adult relationship, Ashani, who also always talks me out of a hole and gives me really good advice and sometimes quite tough advice as well. Yeah, I love that. Love that. Vanessa, what has been the toughest time in your career? When I had a burnout in my late 20s, that was really tough because my way of functioning just wasn't working anymore. And I didn't have a new way yet and where to go. And that also was the biggest gift I've probably had in my life. Yeah, turned it around, which is good. And the last quick shots question is, I'll go to Laura. What is the single most important thing our listeners can do to really you know, maximise their full potential and just be successful in their careers? The single most important thing. Wow, we've talked about so much today, haven't we? What would I pick? Yes. I think it's about having a sense of purpose. It's about knowing what you're here to do right now, what's really meaningful to you. And and then from that, everything else can unfold. It gives you fuel and it helps you clarify what you want to focus on. Thank you so much to the both of you. It's been great. I mean, we could just talk for, for hours. I hope you've enjoyed your time. Thank you for being just such wonderful guests. And where can our listeners, you know, follow you on social media? Are you on socials or your websites? Vanessa, where can we um, keep up to date with what you're doing? So a great place to go is the Performance Curve book website, which is mm-hmm. www.performancecurvebook.com. Yeah. And then you can find both of us there and, and, and get in touch. Brilliant. Great stuff. Thank you so much again. As with each episode, I have a debrief with my producer, Ryan. What did you think? It was phenomenal, the conversation, the really abstract concepts, but they've really simmered it down into real actionables that anyone can do. And I felt that the performance curve is essentially building up the momentum of those little things that make a big difference. And we're all victims or most people are victims to the opposite. So there's a Mm. momentum of little things that kind of detract us and pull us down and bring us into the dumps. But their perspective on things is to deliberately build up techniques to make sure that you're performing at the best. And it's it's counterintuitive, but they've done the research. It's not just like a a fluffy concept. They're researchers. And that's that's what was um, fantastic about it. Yeah. And I think I love that the, and I talked about this in the, when I was talking to them, but they're credible. And I think it's important that, and not to sort of criticise, but sometimes you get these books and it's like these mindfulness success yeah. books. And yeah. people don't really have the credibility. No, mm. These women have PhDs. They've got skin in the game. It's very much academic with practical theory. And then not only from their own sort of expertise, they've gone and done research with, I think it was two sets of dozen individuals. So they've mm. really thought about it, done the research, it's really sort of certified. So you know that when you're reading the performance curve and what they're talking about, I felt like I'm talking to people who actually, they've done their due diligence and that's what really kind of spoke to me. Mm. Um, And I loved that. And it was 
interesting when I was talking to them about how I've been in therapy for a year and what living my life well looks like mm. has completely shifted. Yeah. And then she was saying to me, well, you've actually been working in your, on your inner operating system. I was like, okay, yeah. I, just, well, I was just sorting out my issues, but I didn't actually realise, no, that is what I was doing. I've actually been doing the inner work. That's right. That's right. And, pro- and reprogramming my mind and, and sort of, and sort of, yeah, and sort of making myself a better sort of individual. So that was quite eye-opening for me. It's, yeah, super yeah. eye-opening. That That is the work because... I mean, through the lens of performance and careers and work and stuff like that, it, it, it usually we think of those, these two things as separate. Mm. Doing a work in therapy and stuff like that is more about like your life, isn't it? Not necessarily yeah. how that's going to affect you positively at work. Mm-hmm. So what, what she was saying that, yeah, you're actually amending your inner operating system and exactly. you're I'm moving your iceberg. It's, oh, wow. <laughs> and that whole concept about the iceberg, I was sitting here, <laughs> I was like, that's me. Yeah, <laughs> when yeah, Laura was exactly. saying about the drive for to give value and mm. if you're not doing that how that shakes you and that can build mm. up to the tip of the iceberg I relate to that <laughs> a lot yeah definitely yeah definitely I think my one would be a need to please mm. and it's not like being value but like I need to please and people to say oh you don't you know you, you really helped me yes oh that kind of has driven me mm. to the point of boom and bust my yes. my need to please and just help people oh, and for yeah. people to say oh you were really helpful so mm. I, I related in a slightly different context but to that as well yeah yeah I but also have to then really check key. in when you feel that build up happening yeah and that yeah. is a practice because the first few times it's going to feel a bit awkward and you're probably going to stumble mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. noticing that over and over again so it doesn't overtake you it's um exactly. yeah really important concepts yeah definitely really really important and I think it was just I mean there was just so many takeaways but I think for me what it made me sort of understand as well is that sometimes it's a small stuff so mm. you know the performance curve is not something that you can read the book and then you're going to be like wow tomorrow I'm at optimum it's like the small things that you do every day yeah uh, that that will make a difference absolutely yeah. Be, yeah being deliberate like planning it in what they were saying about the pattern between all of the successful people that they interview mm-hmm. was that They all planned annually. Mm -hmm. They planned mindfulness annually and then broke that down into little goals and made sure that they wasn't beating themselves up as well if they didn't Mm -hmm. reach those goals. So, yeah, I think that the main takeaway is about direction, momentum and taking care of yourself. And and it's actually that that builds up that performance and gets you to where you need to go. So, yes, thank you, Vanessa Dietzel and Laura Watkins. It was um, a great conversation. Great, yeah. Really great. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and for joining me for After Work Drinks. If you learned anything from this episode, please do share with someone you think would benefit. Don't forget to leave me a comment with what you learned along with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people like yourself find the show. Follow us on Instagram on at After Work Drinks Club A special thank you goes to Blue Water and to Pure Creation Media for producing this episode.